let's talk church shopping, shall we? You know, when an individual or family are looking for a new church home, either from recent relocation or changing needs, and visit a lot of different churches to find a good fit. How do they determine what is a good church or not? Is it a gorgeous campus with all the amenities? Is it thousands of people in the room with worship thumping like a rock concert and they pass out earplugs on the way in? Is it a small church with children squawking and squirming in the pews while boring preachers drone on and on? Is it a calendar full of programs for ministry and outreach? Is it relationships of depth where you are cared for and challenged to grow? How does one assess the health of a church? If someone were to say to you, tell me about City Church, what would you say? We meet on Sundays on Diamond Lake Road and Humboldt. We have these ministries. You'll meet these kinds of people here. But is all that what really matters? If Jesus himself were to walk into our building this morning, fill out our connection card, and be part of our community for the next month, what might he say about us? I'm assuming most of us would want to hear what Jesus thinks about us. We are, after all, in this for him. As we continue our series on the seven churches in Revelation 1 to 3, our passage today actually gives Jesus' assessment of a church not that unlike ours in some respects. And to anyone here who wouldn't consider yourself part of the church, maybe you're a bit skeptical of the church really, I think this message will be validating for you. And to anyone here deeply committed to seeing the church thrive, I think this passage will be deeply hopeful for you. Before I read the passage, I think it will be helpful to know a little bit more about the city addressed, Sardis. Now, there's no city today where Sardis once stood. Its ruins lie in modern-day Turkey. And it's a city of a bygone era. It was initially the capital city of a kingdom, probably because of its location and industry, made it a transportation and commercial hub. Situated at the cross-section of numerous key Roman roads, it became a primary exporter of dyed cloth, and this made the city filthy rich. So rich that it was the first place gold and silver coins were minted at the time. The phrase, as rich as Croesus, their king, was common vernacular. They had money. Along with the wealth came a reputation for immorality, loose living of all kinds, evidenced by their numerous temples for pagan gods. Furthermore, its location atop a steep cliff some 1,500 feet above sea level provided a decent natural defense against invaders, except on two occasions when the city was conquered by enemy troops. And in both cases, the overly confident Sardians had left part of their citadel unguarded at night, thinking no one would be able to scale their steep cliffs. How wrong they were. After an earthquake, the city never quite recovered and remains an archaeological site to this day. In fact, both cities, given the harshest judgments in these seven letters, Sardis and Laodicea, are the only two cities that did not survive to this century, which is perhaps telling. In hearing Jesus' message, one has to wonder, 
Is the future of the church in Sardis mirroring the city's history? For they too are headed for spiritual attack and disaster if they don't wake up and pay attention. Hear now the word of the Lord from Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. The words would be on the screen. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now let me pause and clarify the seven spirits, or sevenfold spirit, is actually referring to the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars is referring to the seven churches. So this passage starts with Jesus holding the Holy Spirit in one hand and the churches in the other. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Now, obviously, Jesus is not referring to those who are not potty trained. <laughs> He's referencing their moral purity, as the next verse makes clear. They will walk with me dressed in white. That was the color for purity or righteousness. For they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out that, the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me first describe what this passage means for Sardis. Then we'll look at what it might mean for City Church. For Sardis. The sobering truth Jesus communicates in this message is, you aren't fooling me. I see right through you. Verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. See, on the outside, by all optics and measures, it seems like this church is healthy, thriving. There are external data points of ABCs, attendance, buildings, cash. It's all strong. Their reputation is good. Maybe they're doing a lot of good deeds in their city or busy with lots of religious activity. Apparently to Jesus, those external factors of determining health are not the only factors to consider. He still finds them devoid of spiritual life and power. We get more of a picture of what their problem is in verse 4. There are a few people in Sardis who have not soiled, meaning stained or dyed, their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Remember, this city's primary export is dyed cloth. So this is a familiar metaphor for them. But there's more to it. Archaeologists have found inscriptions in the city banning anyone with soiled or stained clothes from worshiping in their pagan temples as it was an insult to their deity. So it's possible that in this context, stained clothes means people in the church who are also worshiping at these temples. They've taken on the wealth, the pleasure, and even the idols 
of their surrounding culture, you really can't tell one stained cloth from the other. See, we can tell just as much about Sardis by what is not said as what is said. For example, every other city in these chapters, except Laodicea, whose rebuke equals Sardis, is told to persevere in the persecution they're facing. There's no mention of persecution here. Sardis is so much like its surrounding culture, they're not living differently enough to attract the attention of their pagan neighbors. Lacking in conviction and courage, they're apparently innocuous to their surrounding community. They're not doing anything worth persecuting. Here's another piece of telling piece of missing data. Every other church in these seven letters is commended for something good, even if they're rebuked. Here, the only good thing about Sardis is her reputation. Sure, verse 4 says there are a few who are still faithful, but in all the other letters, it's a few who are the problem. Sardis is a breeding ground of mediocrity, spiritual apathy, and uncommitted masses. To make matters worse, the church isn't aware of its state. It's sleepwalking. It's out of touch with what's really going on, either because it's lowered its standard morally or because it's overly confident from its wealth or status. One writer described it as a church drowning in its own inoffensiveness, unable to believe that its reputation for being alive is no longer deserved. Ouch. That's a dangerous place to be. That leaves them quite vulnerable, susceptible to sudden attack. Jesus says if you aren't careful, you might just wake up to find things are imploding. And the head of his church says, enough, wake up. Or another way of translating that is be watchful. That must have hit home to a city that had been captured twice because of its failure to set guard and keep watch. If spiritual apathy is their problem, it's time to get serious. And Jesus' warning to the church is get help now. There's only a little time left before it's over. You can hear the sense of urgency in verses 2 and 3, which are actually five quick staccato verbs. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, obey, or hold fast, and repent. This is the last chance. There is a finite amount of time here to turn this thing around. We know what that's like in various arenas of our lives. This is the final boarding call. The cabin door will be closing. It will not reopen for any reason. The window of opportunity to regain your emotion or hearing is closing. This is the last sunny day in October, right before the snow, so you better get those leaves up off the ground, otherwise they might be there for six more months. Now is the time. If they don't change their ways, Jesus will come like a thief, meaning unexpectedly. This is not referencing Jesus' second coming when he restores all things for good at the end of time because thankfully that day does not depend on whether or not Sardis repents. That will happen regardless, praise the Lord. He's talking about Jesus exercising some kind of judgment on the church for its failure to authentically live and look like Jesus. And his point is, do it now. This is a critical moment in her history. The situation is dire, but it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless because they've been here before. They can get here again. 
Verse 3, remember what you have heard, have received. Hold it fast and repent. Remember the days when you were first wooed by the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus and the life he offers. Hold fast to the devotion you had then and repent of your indifference. He's saying an actual change will mean you will live differently. Your garments won't be stained. You're going to diverge from the path and decisions of your neighbors. You may actually draw some attention or criticism for your non-conformist behavior. That's okay. In fact, that's probably a sign of health. And here's the final encouragement. You aren't alone. There's still a few faithful, non-stained ones who can serve as models, encouragement, and inspiration. And oh, will you be rewarded. You will be victorious. The promise is initially stated negatively in verse 5. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Every Greek and Roman city had an official registry of their citizens. And those names could be erased, either upon death or upon committing treason. When you, your name was erased, you lost your citizenship. You no longer had access to this place. You no longer belonged. This is a sort of divine ledger with a similar idea. If your name's here, you're in. You're part of this community. And Jesus is going to vouch for you before the Father so you have nothing to worry about. Just in case imminent death isn't enough of a motivation for them, Jesus is encouraging them with what their future reward will be if they indeed do turn back to him. So, that's what this passage means for Sardis. What might it mean for us today, for the church in North America, generally, and for City Church more specifically? This is a convicting passage for the church in North America. We are, by global standards, like Sardis, pretty wealthy. We are, like Sardis, largely free of overt persecution for our faith. My family and I actually hosted missionaries this week from modern-day Turkey, where the ruins of Sardis lie. And they were describing what it's like to live there. Best estimates put Turkey as 99% Muslim. Less than 1% of the country are Christian. People who convert to Christianity in Turkey risk losing their jobs, homes, inheritance, family, sometimes more. So church really is their home. Church becomes their family. Now, I'm not wishing for that kind of context at all. I'm deeply grateful for the religious freedom we experience. But it is worth raising the question in the context of financial resources and religious freedom, how do we keep ourselves from getting complacent about our faith? How do we ensure we aren't becoming so much like our culture that we no longer differ from it in the ways that matter? If Sardis is a cautionary tale for us, then we must recognize that we will slowly, naturally drift away from Christ without intentional decisive action, like an ocean current gradually pulling us from the point of the beach where we first entered the water, we too will drift. We must, from time to time, get out of the ocean, come back to where we started, and get our bearings. Years ago, I was in a church with lots of young adults. 
And I remember my friend's dismay one Sunday when she discovered the man sitting in the pew in front of her was the same man who'd pressured her sexually on a date the week before. On another occasion, I remembered the awkwardness when visitors recognized a small group leader as the biggest binge drinker at the party the previous week. That's not how it's supposed to be. Now, granted, not everyone present on Sunday morning has committed to following Jesus. Frankly, we're not doing our job if that's not the case. So we have to be careful about making assumptions. Okay. But if large majorities of people or people in leadership aren't living in obedience to Jesus' ways, we have a problem. I say this partly to call us to obedience and partly to validate some of you who've come from yucky church situations, scandals, splits, immorality. Maybe that's turned you off to church or to Christianity, and I am so sorry. That is not God's intent. Your caution is well-deserved. Jesus sees it. He understands. May you be comforted in that and continue seeking him despite that. Now, I am not seeking to judge other churches here. Jesus alone is the judge in this passage. I'm real comfortable letting him be that. None of us sees as clearly as he does. But obedience to this text means we will take an honest look at ourselves. So let's do that. What does this passage mean for City Church? On an individual level, it's worth asking, what works might Jesus find unfinished or uncompleted in our lives? In what areas of our lives is there room for growth? Is there a moral issue it's time to confront? Are there competing priorities or allegiances that matter more to us? Do we exhibit regular habits and patterns consistent with the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. In a room this size, I don't know what it might be for you. I encourage you to talk with God about this and with people you know well because these are difficult tensions. The goal is not to completely remove ourselves from our context. We're to be a light and model an alternative way of living in the world, not of it. That can't happen if we completely isolate ourselves. We're to stay in the culture, transforming it to a pointing to a different way of life. We just have to watch not letting us get squeezed into the mold at the same time. On a corporate level, it's worth asking, how might we press more into life in the spirit? Is there anything we need to reassess to ensure all that we do is alive, full of life? This next season at City Church is a great time for a fresh start. We're already rethinking so many aspects of church life, partly from post-COVID realities, partly from leadership transitions, but it's a great time to be reflecting and evaluating. What activities or habits do you want to invest in over this next year to see your spiritual life grow? What's bubbling up in you that you want to see us do as a community that you can see yourself participating in? Maybe the Lord is inviting you into something. We'd love to talk with you about what that might be. And we would love to have you join us praying regularly for our community. 
that if we are asleep, and only Jesus will know, we would wake up and live more fully alive in his presence. I told you this passage was deeply convicting. But it's also deeply hopeful. Hopeful because it isn't too late or else Jesus wouldn't be saying it. Hopeful because we aren't alone in this. There are still a few faithful. Strengthen what remains. Hopeful because we have been here before so we can get here again. But mostly hopeful because of the image shared at the beginning of this passage in verse 1. And that's what I want us to see in closing. The image of Jesus Christ, the head of and founder of the church, holding both this little church in one hand and the Holy Spirit in the other. As to the church, he holds us in his hands. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, the author and perfecter, translated finisher, of the faith. He gets it done. As to the Spirit, this same Holy Spirit lives in us. John 14, 17, you know him because he lives with you and will be in you. He is the Spirit of truth, the advocate, the comforter, the healer, and he still speaks to his church today. Romans 3, 6, those who have ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Jesus Christ who was dead and is now alive, holds both the church and the spirit. So if there's a church that is seemingly alive, but actually dead, he can connect it with the life-giving spirit. He alone can fuse the two together. Jesus Christ is sovereign over all the church. He is the source of all spiritual power. He alone can bring life so while the list of things I don't know about this next season for our church is substantially long, the one thing I know is this, that he holds both the church and the spirit, and for this reason, I am hopeful. City Church, the message for us today is pretty clear, and it's pretty convicting. It's possible for churches to look alive on the outside, but be decaying on the inside. And Jesus Christ wants his church full of life internally, awake and alert to the temptations before us, distinct from the culture around us, and alive to the Holy Spirit's promptings among us. Let's have the courage and humility to take an honest look at ourselves and strengthen what remains so that when he comes, he will find us alive, not just in reputation, but also in reality. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we are so grateful for you. You alone know, you see, each one of us individually, us corporately, us in North America, your church globally, you alone see. Would you prompt us, as you always do gently, by your Holy Spirit, to take an honest look at ourselves and to ask what unfinished business needs to get done. Help us with that. As we have sung earlier, that is only possible for us to take an honest look because our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. Thanks be to God. 
Give us courage to walk with you, we pray. Give us wisdom and direction. We pray for your sake. Amen.